Hello and welcome to The Pulse. Later in the show, dissension in the Hong Kong University Students' Union as student politics mirror the political struggles we see elsewhere in society. And author, analyst and former head of the Central Policy Unit, Leo Gustat, talks to us about Hong Kong's poverty in the midst of plenty. First though, sometimes the motto of government seems to be, if in doubt, set up a committee or a commission. There are commissions looking into all kinds of things in Hong Kong. But why is there no Children's Commission? A rather obvious omission, is it not? When Mr. Lau Gong Hua, he himself was the previous Legislative Council, and the Legislative Council in 2007 had actually unanimously endorsed a motion, which though have no legal binding, but still urging the government to set it up, to set up a child commission. Tomotong 在2018年香港,often,their but SAL has been submitting a children's rights report to the United Nations since 2005. The UN did suggest that Hong Kong set up a children's commission, an alliance of more than 20 child-related NGOs and professional bodies pressed for this establishment. In a report prepared for submission to the UN this year, the government says there are already existing measures and organizations in place to promote children's rights including the Children's Rights Forum and Family Council. The UN, after seeing the NGOs and also after the previous hearing of the Hong Kong report, have asked the government, the Hong Kong government, specifically to explain why the delay. While the world, 70 countries and 200 jurisdictions 
have been more willing to take a better option by appointing child commissioners and setting up child commission. What's the delay here in Hong Kong? 兒童權利論壇其實我參加了幾次都是有帶過小朋友去的其實很多時候我們曾經討論過國民教育討論過西九討論一些學校、一些訓輩的服務、政策等等很多時候我們去我們收到通知其實是可能收到通知就是兩個
ironically, this so-called unconstitutional by-election is organized by the group of councillors who accused the uh, original election of violating the constitution uh, without any uh, solid uh, ground. At the root of the crisis is the feeling among many students that more and more individuals from pro-Beijing organizations are taking positions in the union and manipulating elections. 親中團在他在香港的大學生組織滲透已經不是近這十年的事 last year's chief executive election, the Hong Kong New Student Union raised many eyebrows by spending $400,000 on newspaper ads condemning alleged triad involvement in the process. This led many to criticize the union's apparent political agenda. Some have raised concern that many current core members of the union come from the Hong Kong Tertiary Student Alliance, or TSA, branded by some as a pro-Beijing organization. But members of the TSA have been serving in the Students' Union for a long time. Wong Pak Wing, Winston Shum and Kenneth Moy all served for more than one term. Lam Ga Chun was employed as a union staff member. Wong, the founder of TSA, ran for the Hong Kong University Student Union election almost a decade ago on a platform overtly supporting the then chief executive. He lost. Now, he's a committee member of the Y Elites Association Limited, in which Chen Ran has also been involved. Io Chan was also a member of the TSA. He was voted out as president of the Student Council for his views on the June 4th Tiananmen Square incident. He described it as just a little problem. Terence wrote a note on Facebook saying he had left the Tertiary Student Alliance because an activity he planned for students was voted down by committee members just as it was about to launch.
Welcome back. Well, we all know the figures by now and know the not-so-great news. Hong Kong's Gini coefficient, a key measure of the disparity between rich and poor, is one of the world's largest. Images of the cramped conditions in which some of Hong Kong's people live have made international news and earned us the dubious distinction of being labelled as turning our poor into battery hens. The Poverty in the Midst of Plenty exhibition showcases the work of seven finalists in the Wing Master Award for Photography competition. The Wing Foundation initiated the project last year to boost public awareness of poverty. At the United Nations Millennium Summit in the year 2000, world leaders made a pledge to end poverty by 2015. With only two years to the deadline, people know this is not going to happen. For international onlookers, Hong Kong is a city of great wealth, but also great poverty. Housing is a problem, especially for poorer people. Actually, a number of people told us the place where I lived, to, lived in before was worse. Perhaps, you know, they were living in partition flats. They were paying more money for less space uh, with uh, little light and little air and moving up to the roof was in many cases an improvement. Seminars accompanying the exhibition this week have allowed experts on poverty issues to share their thoughts. Some asked whether the much vaunted free market was a cause or cure for poverty, particularly in situations where vested interests have so much power. The government in Hong Kong, when it wants to use its power, it uses it. And, you know, that's the end of the story. So we, we shouldn't say big business is to blame. The people to blame are those who listen to big business saying, oh, Tama, you know, can't make money, it's so difficult, Hong Kong is not competitive. existence of substandard housing, whether it's rooftop huts or partition rooms or cage homes, uh, points to the inadequacy of affordable housing in the city. And it's uh, to, to have photographs and to have exhibitions like this uh, really act as a reminder um, to come for, for people, like for government, for policymakers, for people, local Hong Kong people, that it's not part of a history, it's still very much in our present. Well, with us in the studio is Leo Goodstadt. Leo Goodstadt, you've just finished uh, writing a book, in fact, about poverty in Hong Kong. C can you paint us a picture of what it looks like today? We have a, a new kind of poverty in Hong Kong, something that we hadn't expected, something we hadn't seen before. And we can begin with by talking about the elderly. We have an aging population. And what we didn't realize 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when we, sh we had the time to prepare for it, these people, when they retire, have no pensions, so they have to live on means-tested Social Security, CSSA. And that means a very large number of people. We're talking about hundreds of thousands. But there's also a new kind of poverty in the sense that um, what we used to provide either very cheaply in the public sector or for free, like excellent education, secondary school education, 
and excellent hospital services we're now charging for and price rationing in a way that we never did in the past so that we get people with serious diseases like cancer who find themselves uh, uh, becoming impoverished as they try to pay for the treatment the best kind of treatment which they believe um, uh, 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 they could get either in the private sector because of queuing times in the public sector or because the drugs are not being supplied free of charge in the, in, in the public sector and you get families then struggling with children who've got uh, disabilities and who need early intervention programs to ensure that as they go through the, the school system they, they have the capacity to take full advantage on the same basis as any other child. Those early intervention programs are defective, they're not, they're, they're not sufficient to meet all demands. So we have a whole range of, of, of these kind of situations. Some of them are totally heartbreaking. For example, we have a waiting time for perhaps the most vulnerable group of all. These are the uh, uh, individuals who have severe mental disabilities and there's a waiting time of 82 months for admission to the residential care that they need. That's almost seven years. And so uh, the suffering for themselves and the families is you know, beyond any ordinary experience that you and I might have. And uh, these kinds of problems uh, have to be solved through proper programs, future planning, financial commitment. And we haven't got round as a community, and certainly not as a government, to grasping that and, and putting in, pla in place the programs, the plans that will solve these problems as soon as possible. And, and every time I look at these figures, it seems to me that the poverty graph is, is growing. Is, is that in fact a perception or is it true? Well, the, the, the poverty gap in terms of cash is, is a different matter because we're talking now about not simply people don't have enough money in their pockets, they don't have the services which they need to, to solve these life-threatening issues. But it is also true that we have the gap growing in another sense that our, 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 our wages, our household incomes, stopped improving until 2010. And yet all these charges for education... I meant between rich and poor. Well, rich and poor, in fact. Mm. So if you introduce a fee system and if you say we're going to privatise, we're going to use the private sector more, obviously um, this is a great benefit to those who are at the top of the scale because they're getting a bigger, bigger share of, uh, of the pie. But essentially the problem is not income distribution or income redistribution. It's simply the non-availability of services which are desperately important for the most vulnerable members of our community. The, the old, um, maybe it's a myth, or but anyway, the old thing that people used to say about Hong Kong was always oh, full of self-reliant people, you don't really need all these support programs, the system will somehow take care of it because everybody here is so mm. able to, to, to dig themselves out of poverty. Is that really viable anymore? Well, uh, unfortunately, that's the situation that we as a community leave people in. So it's not m widely known, but of the unemployed, less than one in four actually get social security. Don't ask me how the other three quarters without jobs manage to survive. And with the elderly, the over 60s, the figure is less than one in five get social security. How do they survive? And we, in Hong Kong, not only do we still believe that dependence mentality is very dangerous, we keep believing that people like the unemployed or the elderly somehow could dig themselves out when, when, when in fact we don't have a, dependent, a, dependence, a dependency mentality 
And we need to persuade more elderly people, for example, to have enough money to pay for a decent diet, to have a, a, a proper accommodation and so on. Are there any quick fixes here? Well, there are some quick fixes. I mean, um, for hospital treatment is basically a question of, of uh, medication in particular, a question of giving the hospitals more money. Um, and then uh, 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 for some of the problems of waiting times, we could uh, certainly, I think, find new buildings. But you watch it, the point you're making is an important one. We have stopped planning for so long. The last five-year plan for social welfare, for example, was 1998. And if, if you're trying to help people with serious social or health or educational problems, you need trained staff. So there have to be the university programs to train them expanded. Then they need on-the-job training to qualify as consultants if they're doctors. So in that sense, no, there are no quick fixes. And every time we say this is a serious problem, we don't know how to solve it, we're adding another year, two years, and so on to the waiting times the lack of education, the lack of treatment which people have to endure. Well, I've got to start on that depressing note. Thank you very much. And that's it for the polls for this week. We'll be back at the same time next week. Goodbye. Have you seen 